Thank you, choir. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 is where we are this morning. That's uh, a little bit out of the ordinary coming from that direction up here to the, uh, to the uh, platform. Not used to sitting over there. You know, it's not a great seat over there because I could hear myself sing. That's, uh, I, know, <laughs> I know now why it's better that I sit on the floor. I could, you know, we, these past few weeks we've had just a great, great crowd. You guys are just inviting people and all kind of stuff, and it's just been great. You know, our 9 o'clock service has been well attended. This one's just slam-packed, and uh, you know, we're, we're taking steps to try to alleviate that. But, you know, I could really clear these crowds out in just eight little words. I have a song I'd like to sing. <laughs> Uh, one more word would even clear it up more, acapella. That would make it even, make it even worse. It is great to see you. I mean, what a great crowd this morning. I, I hope your heart is open to what God wants to do this morning. You know, I, I don't typically know what, what our choir is singing in advance. Um, I don't plan those things. Nathan does a far better job than I ever could even hope to in those kind of things. I, I usually get, you know, obviously a kind of a rundown of the service in regards to the, the songs and stuff ahead of time. And I, I saw the song that our choir just sang. There are no orphans, and I'd heard that song, um, you know, numerous times. It's been a while since I've heard it, but I didn't remember what the words were. I tell you, I, I, both services, I just, it just uh, impressed me as to how the Lord puts things together because that song fits perfectly with what we're looking at in this passage of Scripture, again, in Acts chapter 10, and how, how often the Lord does that. But Acts chapter 10 uh, is where we're going to be this morning as we look at a message entitled, All. This is the, uh, I would say, one of the two most crucial passages of Scripture that we'll read of in the book of Acts, if not the most pivotal. Acts chapter 16 will bring us to another one, but this passage is far more important, perhaps, than what you will realize when you first read it, and we'll see why. There will be a a huge door that's going to be open here for the gospel as we get into this part of Acts chapter 10, an enormous opportunity for people to come to Christ, and Acts chapter 10 captures how the Lord got us to that point, what he had to do orchestrating behind the scenes to get us to the point, to get the early church to the point to where the gospel was open to all. And so it's a very important passage of scripture that we're going to be looking at. Before we look at it, I want you to just try to formulate, if you could, in your mind, your list. You know, everybody has a list. Uh, I'm a person who loves to have lists. Susie can find lists of mine all around the house going back years past. I love to have that. I'll do things. Have you ever done something just so you could write on your list so you could scratch it off? Have you ever done? I will write stuff on my list that I've already done just so I can have the pleasure of, ah, Writing, just scratching that thing off. We all have lists for different things. However, sadly, I would be willing to say that far too many of us in this place this morning, if we were to be honest with ourselves, have a list that doesn't belong. And so who's on your list? You say, Brooks, what kind of a list are you talking about? Well, it's the list of people or groups of people that you have formulated in your mind or in your heart of people that don't deserve your time, your attention, your effort, or your Savior. It's the people, perhaps, that you've never thought of, but they're there on the list somewhere in the back of your mind, in the back of your heart. And that list is comprised of people that don't deserve your time, they don't deserve your attention, they don't deserve your efforts, and they certainly don't deserve your Savior. Maybe for you, it's that alcoholic who has caused so much problems for your family, more heartache than you could ever even imagine. Maybe it's the person of a different color, a couple of office doors down from you. Maybe for you, it's the filthy-mouthed co-worker that you look to run from faster than you run to. Maybe it's the sex offender in your neighborhood. It's the list of people that aren't worthy of your time, your attention, your effort, or your Savior. 
In Acts chapter 10, God would do something dramatic, even miraculous, to make sure that the early church got it right. To make sure that the gospel wasn't just for that nice little grouping of people that somewhat seemingly deserved it, even though no one deserves it. And God would communicate the message in dramatic fashion to a man by the name of Simon Peter. And so Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, we're going to break down a lengthy passage of Scripture this morning into a few little bite-sized pieces. We're going to break it down as we go, looking at a message entitled All, and out of this passage we're going to pull out one principle that I hope will be at best encouraging and, and perhaps for some absolutely transforming. And so Acts chapter 10 Beginning in verse 1, it says, Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all of his household, and he gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who was speaking to him had left, he, Cornelius, summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Let me just stop there for a moment. You find here the mention of a man named Cornelius who is a centurion. And he's in the city of Caesarea. Caesarea is about 30 miles from Joppa. Joppa is where Simon Peter is. Chapter 9 left him there. And so you've got Simon Peter in Joppa. You've got this centurion Cornelius in Caesarea. Caesarea is a coastal city. It's a key city. It was the capital, actually, of the Roman province of Judea. There would have been a large contingency of Roman troops there. And this Cornelius, a centurion, would have more than likely, according to history, been in charge of a hundred of those men who were part of that large garrison of troops there. He was a man who understood authority. He, he had great power. He would have been a man of a tremendous significance in his world. And so here is this man the Bible describes as Cornelius. He's living in Caesarea. And he is described in this passage in verse 2 as a devout man who feared God. In the book of Acts, you've got really four groupings of people. You've got the Jews. That's not a surprise. You've got Gentiles. You've got Samaritans. And then you've got those that are known as the God-fearers. You think, what are the God-fearers? Well, it was a, it was a, a significant group of people, a, a, a separate grouping of people. A God-fearer was one who had been born as a Gentile. They weren't Jewish by heritage, but they had an affinity for God. They had a hunger for God. And so what they had done was they had basically embraced and even converted to Judaism. They were not Christians, but they had converted to Judaism. So they're Gentile by birth. They are Jew by choice. They didn't believe in the false Roman gods or the Greek gods that you studied when you were in school. They didn't believe in all that. They believed in God. They sought to honor God and to seek God and to worship God, but they did not know Jesus. They had not taken the full step to be Jewish in regards to taking the rite of circumcision as those who were Jews by heritage, but they were known as the God-fearers. And we find here that Cornelius is a Gentile, he is a, a, a centurion, he is in Caesarea, he is a fearer of God, but he doesn't know Jesus Christ. Verse 3 says it was around the ninth hour, it's about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, that God basically gives him a vision. He sends an angel to him with a message, 
And that message is that he is ultimately, uh, uh, has had his prayers heard by God, and he is to send for a man named Simon Peter. Verse 6, God tells him right where Simon Peter is going to be. Tells him where to go. You're going to find him in Joppa. You're going to find him in the house of a guy named Simon. He is a tanner. The house is by the sea. By the way, this is a freebie, but isn't it awesome how God knows right where we live, just what we need, just knows just how to give it to us. There are people at times that will come to me after a service and say, man, that, that was just what I needed. Nine o'clock service, for example. That was exactly what I needed. Just what I needed to see. There's a, a, a little phrase that pastors often use where it's called, you've been reading my mail. You know, have you been coming in reading my mail? How did you know what to say to me? Well, God knows. He knows just what we need and just how to apply it to our lives. And so he gives to this centurion, Cornelius, he gives him very specific orders. You send three men down and you find Simon Peter. And that's exactly what he does. He sends them to Peter. And at the same time, we find that God is going to be working in Peter's heart to prepare him for this encounter. Now, here's where the backstory gets real interesting. You may remember that for Jews and Gentiles, they did not spend a lot of time together. Not because of any wrongdoing on the Gentiles' part or by God's desire. Jews just did not want to spend time with Gentiles. There was a barrier. There was a separation there between the two. They did not spend time together. Jews did not think highly of Gentiles. Jews would not have embraced the thought of Gentiles coming to a relationship with God. That would not have been something that they would have longed to see. And so there was a barrier there between Jew and Gentile. Now that barrier had been demolished. It had been absolutely done away with at the cross. In fact, Colossians, you don't have to turn there, but just listen. In Colossians chapter 1, it says, Of this church I was made a minister, the apostle Paul would write, according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. And here he describes it. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. God's desire was for Jew and Gentile alike to come to hear the gospel. But any Jew, even those that had come to Jesus, would not have been the first to raise their hand to say, let me take it to them. And so there was work that needed to be done in Simon Peter's heart. And God would be faithful to accomplish that. And so let's pick up there in Acts 10. Let's begin again in verse 9 now. And seeing what God is doing as he orchestrates in Peter's heart the work that's needed for him to be willing to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Look at what it says, verse 9. It says, on the next day, as they, that's Cornelius and his, and his three uh, companions, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour, it's around noon, to pray. But he became hungry and he was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. The Bible didn't describe what that was, didn't describe how that happened. We can liken it to a vision to some degree that God gave him miraculously. Verse 11, and he saw the sky opened up. And an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Some of you hunters, that's a great verse. You're going to hang on to that for the rest of your life, right, when people get on to you for hunting. Well, you know, told Peter, get up and kill him and eat him. That's not really the intent of the passage, but use it if it makes you feel better. Verse 14. He says, but Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. And again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times. And immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Something we need to be aware of. 
Peter was Jewish. He'd been born a Jew, raised a Jew, spent a lot of time, obviously, listening to the teaching of the Old Testament scriptures. His framework, his mindset was of a Jewish perspective. Now, when he came to Christ, obviously, he embraced Jesus as the Messiah, as his Savior, as his Lord. But this Simon Peter still had a Jewish framework that he would typically operate out of until God would begin to adjust that. Well, if you remember from the Old Testament, there were certain laws that today we think are just out of the ordinary. What in the world was going on with some of these laws in the Old Testament? There were dietary laws that God had put in place to keep the people of Israel pure and separate, if you want to call it that, from the nations that did not honor God that surrounded them. In fact, don't turn, but just listen. Leviticus chapter 20, all the way back in the Old Testament, captures a little bit of this. God says to the people of Israel, you are therefore to make a distinction between the clean animal and the unclean, and between the unclean bird and the clean. And you shall not make yourselves detestable by animal or by bird or by anything that creeps on the ground which I've separated from you as unclean. Thus you are to be holy to me, God says, for the Lord I am holy and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. And so what God did in the Old Testament was he gave his people certain dietary laws that would help to keep them separate from the pagan nations that surrounded them would help to keep them as uh, unique from the other nations. That's why when you read the book of Daniel, with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, some of the stances they took were because of that Old Testament law. You think, Brooks, how does this tie in? Well, you've got to remember, Simon Peter, that was his mindset. He was a Jew who had come to Christ. And so he looks at the, at the food that's available as clean and unclean, some that, is, that, that would be uh, uh, suitable for him to eat and to enjoy, and others that would be off-limits. And so in this passage in Acts chapter 10, what God is doing here is he's really kind of making a couple of changes. One that's somewhat insignificant. He's saying, hey, those dietary laws, they're out. (laughs) That has been abolished at the cross. In fact, Colossians chapter 1 mentions exactly that when it tells us specifically that God would do away with those dietary laws. He said, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. What God is doing there in Acts 10 is he's taking those dietary laws that were in place and he's removing them. that's, That's secondary to what Acts chapter 10 is communicating. But it is important because sometimes you'll come across some Christians that are so legalistic that you can't eat this and you can't eat that, you know. Dietary laws aren't my issue. It's a, it's a prohibition against exercise that I have a problem with some, sometimes. <laughs> I need to work on that. Pray for me. But here in chapter 10, he's saying, hey, the dietary laws, they're, they're, no more. that's not the focus. Christ is your focus. But there was a bigger message that was coming down the, coming down the line here to Peter. Because Peter is looking at these animals, and God is communicating a message. And it wasn't about animals. It was about people. And he's saying, Simon as these animals are now no longer separated from you, you kill and you eat, you enjoy, he's telling him a bigger message that so in the same way is everyone to be available for the gospel. There is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. There is no barrier any longer between those who are worthy of the gospel and those that seem to not be worthy of the gospel. 
Just as the song sang, there are no strangers. There are no people who are off limits. The gospel is to be available to every single person. Yes, not everyone knows Christ. We have to still come to him in repentance and faith. Not everyone's going to be in heaven. Everyone will stand before God. I know that sounds heretical. Everybody will stand before God. All roads do lead to God, but not every road will keep you there. (laughs) Everyone will stand before God one day. Some will hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter in. And then others will be ultimately have the wrath of God that will be passed on to them because they chose not to receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. The Revelation calls it the great white throne judgment. Every person will stand before God. Not everyone is going to go to heaven. Not everyone is going to be able to experience salvation because of a failure to accept Christ. But every person is to be reached with the gospel as much as it depends to us. That's what God was telling to Simon Peter. There is to be no distinction. There is to be no separation. Everyone is to be reached ultimately with the gospel. Let's pick up now in verse 17 then. And let's see what God begins to do here. Acts chapter 10, verse 17. Now while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind, you can imagine why. Here's this Jew with a Jewish mindset, now suddenly having his whole perspective transformed. While Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, Behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having, been, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was re- reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. But get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself, God says to him. Well, Peter went down to the men, and he said, Behold, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you, to come to his house and hear a message from you. And so while God is orchestrating all these things in Cornelius' heart, that he is in need of a Savior, And as God is working in Peter's life to show him and to convince him that the gospel is available for every single person, regardless of distinction, he pulls all this stuff together at the very minute, right down to the minute, while Peter is formulating all this stuff in his mind, these men come knocking on the door on behalf of Cornelius. And let me just say, this is a side, a little sidebar here, but let me just say again as a, as a, uh, just a a, a source of encouragement (laughs) that God knows right where you are. Man, I'm telling you, no matter what you face, no matter how hard it may be for you, no matter the difficulties that you encounter, no matter how how much uphill the road may seem, no matter what uh, tragedies you're in the midst of or difficulties or trials you're enduring, no matter how bad your loss, how, how, how badly you seem insignificant, no matter how lonely you, whatever the list is, God knows exactly where you are. And for some of you, that won't be a bit of encouragement whatsoever because life is good. But for others, it is a tremendous encouragement to know that right where I stand, right where where I'm in the midst of what I'm experiencing, God knows where I am. And he knows how to reach me. And he knows how to work for my good. He can orchestrate all these circumstances just like he did in chapter 10. He can do it for my good. And so God is working miraculously, pulling all these things together. The lesson is now over for Simon Peter. And as is often the case, now it's time to apply. Did you know, Christian, that as you grow in your faith, and as you study God's Word, and as God teaches you things that maybe you've never seen before, it's not just about the learning, 
but it's about the applying that matters most. When I was a kid, my dad taught me to ride a bike. I didn't learn to ride on the internet. <laughs> I didn't send off for directions, you know, three box tops and get directions in the mail how to ride a bike. I didn't do any of that. My dad took me in our backyard. We had a backyard that was a, a big, big yard, and it kind of sloped ever so slightly away from the house. And what he'd do is he would, he would, he would take, I would be on my bike, my little, you know, skinny eight-year-old self or however old. How old do you ride a bike? Maybe that, maybe that makes me look bad. Okay, I was four. And my dad would, he'd be behind me. Right, he'd be holding on to my to my the, the seat of my bike. Had a had a yellow bike, by the way. It had a big long banana seat. You remember those? The longer the seat, the better the bike. <whistles> Mine was sweet. And so my dad, he was holding on to the back of, 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 of my bicycle seat. And what he'd do is this is the way he taught me to ride a bike. He would he'd kind of run down that hill with me behind me where I couldn't see him, and he'd let go. But he wouldn't tell me when he let go. And I knew he when he let go because you know I was like, whoa, and I knew he let go. But I went further and further and further each time. You know, and so that's how I learned to ride a bike. He was right there with me, on site, hands-on. That's where he was with me. The illustration falls a little short in that God never lets us go. And then when he teaches us things that maybe we're not quite ready for, and when he walks us through circumstances that we're not prepared for seemingly, and when he teaches us things that really take, take us out of our comfort zone, gratefully for the Christian who trusts him, walks with him, he will walk with us. And he never lets us go. And he teaches us how to walk by faith if we're willing to, to just walk with him and apply his word. So Peter here is not just learning this lesson. He's having to apply this lesson. And it's a lesson that is so far out of the box for him, he's never thought of taking the gospel to people that aren't of a Jewish heritage. Are you kidding me? That would have been his mindset. And yet God is teaching him that if he's going to learn the lesson, he's got to apply the message. Did he learn it? Look at verse 23. And so he, Peter, invited them, these three messengers, in, and he gave them lodging. And on the next day, he got up and he went away with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied them. Now, we'll get to what happened as a result of that visit but verse 23, when it says that Simon Peter invited them in and gave them lodging in the Greek language there, the picture there is that he rolled out the red carpet. He gave them great hospitality. And it wasn't even his house. If you remember, this is Simon the Tanner's house. I wonder what he thought about this. And so he opens the door and invites these people in, showing that he seemingly has learned the lesson that God wanted him to learn. And so what's the takeaway? What's the principle here? All this is introduction. <laughs> Now, now let's, get to the, let's get to the message. There's just one principle, I think, that comes out of it. And the principle is this. We must allow no barrier in introducing the gospel to people. We must allow no barrier whatsoever when it comes to introducing the gospel to people. Listen to me very closely. If I had a dollar for every pastor who has been run off from the church that they pastored, because they reached people for Christ that upset the climate of that church, that changed the temperature so much, and it brought in people that didn't look like the church, smell like the church, talk like the church, or act like the church. About a dollar for every pastor that's been run off from the church where God planted them because the church didn't like the people that were getting reached, I would be a rich man today. God doesn't call us to reach people that look like us and smell like us and talk like us and act like us. God doesn't call us to reach people that are within our comfort zone. What God calls us to do is to be willing to step out of our comfort zone and to reach people for whom Christ died. The last time I read my Bible, I'm reminded that Jesus died for everyone. <laughs> 
There was no distinction as to who he would die for, that he was willing to give his life. In fact, Jesus was so intensive and he was so focused upon reaching people in need of the gospel. What he would often do with the religious crowd, the Pharisees, he would come down so hard on them with law. Why? Because they were so prideful. They thought they were good enough because they were good in their actions. He would come down so hard on them. But those who were in need of a Savior and needed it, those that were the downcast, the downtrodden, those that had been kicked out, those that were lonely, those that were hurting, Jesus came to them with grace. In fact, he was so good at what he did that he was accused of being a drunkard. He was accused of being a sinner. He was accused of all these things. Why? Because of the company which he kept. It's called incarnational ministry, and what Jesus did was he went after the people that he knew were in need of a Savior and knew they were sick, and he knew that they were desperate and dying without hope unless he reached them. Those were the ones that he went after, and he was accused of everything. In fact, he was even crucified for the things that he said and for the things that he did because of his desire to reach every person with the gospel. Just, just listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 14 and in Luke chapter 5. He describes for us who it is that we're supposed to reach, and it's not who you think it is. He says in Luke chapter 14, and he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, Jesus begins to speak now. He says, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they might also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Luke chapter 5, Jesus says much the same thing. Verse 31, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And the picture that he paints there is a picture of reaching those with the gospel without distinction, without classification. In fact, let me just get you to turn to one more passage in the book of Proverbs chapter 14 that really helps us to see what's at stake here. Proverbs chapter 14, right in the middle of your Bible, Proverbs chapter 14. A number of years ago, a staff member that is is no longer here, they've they've moved on to uh, to another place of ministry. A staff member mentioned this verse in staff meeting. And uh, we were just different staff were leading devotions on uh, different days. And they mentioned this verse that I'd I'd read before, but it didn't really strike a chord. And and now since it has, I just can't get it off my mind. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 4. I'll read it twice because it's probably going to seem a bit odd when I read it the first time. Proverbs 14, verse 4. It says, and you know how Proverbs reads. Every verse typically stands alone. It says, where no oxen are, the manger is clean. But much increase comes by the strength of the ox. You're thinking, Brooks, what in the world does that verse have to say about anything we're talking about? Let me read it again. Where no oxen are, the manger is clean. But much increase comes by the strength of the ox. If I could take the liberty, let's change ox to cow. What the verse is saying is, if you want the milk, you've got to have the cow. But where there is milk, there will also be manure. Right? You can laugh. It's kind of odd. If you want the milk, you've got to have a cow. And if you're going to have a cow, you better buy a shovel. (laughs) So if you want a clean stable, and if you don't have to mess with all that other stuff, 
don't get a cow. And don't expect milk. But if you want what's good, then you've got to be ready to get dirty. Just listen to me for a second. The typical church in this country has been far too clean for far too long. You know what I'm saying? And the reason is because the typical church in this country doesn't carry a hill of beans about reaching people that aren't like them. If we decide that we're going to involve our lives in people that need a Savior as we do, there's no place for pride (laughs) because we're as much in need of a Savior as anybody on the face of this earth, no matter how good or how bad. But if we have a heart as Christians to reach people with the gospel regardless of distinction, and if we're willing to learn the lesson that Peter learned in that context there, big sheet, all the animals, kill and eat, you know, if we're willing to learn that lesson the way Peter learned it, it's going to get dirty. Because whenever we begin reaching people that Jesus reached, you get phone calls in the middle of the night. And it requires some money that you hand out out of your own wallet, out of your own purse. And it requires going places you're not comfortable going. And it requires being with people you're not comfortable being with. It involves your life and it involves things that you don't expect. And it may actually even consume you. But if you want to reach people the way Jesus calls us to, And if you want to be a part of a work that ultimately will never end as people hear the gospel, come to a Savior who meets us where we are, saves and forgives and heals, then it's going to cost us. And if we want to reach people like that, we have to expect that it's not going to be convenient. And it's not always going to be something that is applauded by the masses. It's going to be something that perhaps even only God sees. But if we're going to reach all the way Jesus did, and if we're going to learn the lesson that Peter learned, what we have to understand is that there must be no barrier in introducing the gospel to people. We did an outreach a few months ago to one of the local housing projects here in town. Partnered with a ministry there, no fault of their own. They expected that we would probably want to set up in, their par- in the ministry's parking lot, cross the street, invite people, y'all come over to a cookout. Come on, come on, y'all come on over. Come over to where we are. Come on over here. We don't want to do it that way. No, no, no. We don't want to do no cookout on your property. We want to go there. It's where the people are. Why would we not? No fault of their own. That's probably the way most churches do it. Y'all, come on. Come on. You know what? Churches have hung a y'all, y'all come sign for far too long. Nobody's coming. <laughs> Except the people like us. Jesus didn't say y'all come. Jesus told the church, go. And when we go, it's not about us. It's about the effectiveness of a gospel to change lives just like it has our own. And when we take that message, you don't have to have skill. You don't have to be a good speaker. You don't have to have some special talent. All you got to be is available. And when the church is available to go, people's lives get changed. It happened then, and it will happen today. And so who's on your list? Who's there? Person of a different background, different culture, different color, different lifestyle. Someone who's hurt you, someone who's lied about you, someone who's betrayed you. Who's on your list? I think Jesus would have us to take that list and burn it. And for the sake of the gospel, in answer to the call, to go.
with heads bowed and eyes closed. We could not build buildings big enough to hold the people that I believe God would want to bring here. And when we begin to see the picture of Scripture that the gospel is available to all, then it frees us to not have to worry about who's worthy because at the end of the day, none of us are. We just go as he calls us to, without distinction, without barrier, without classification. Not in our comfort zone, but more often than not, perhaps out. And we show Christ through the lives that we live, through the service that we render. We share Christ with our mouth, telling people about a Jesus who would do in them what he will even do in us, what what he's already done in us. You know, for many of us, the challenge there is great. There are some barriers that need to go. But I'd be willing to say that for some here this morning, the application for you is not so much, all right, Brooks, I need to take this message to those who need to hear. But I would be willing to say for a a decent number of people here this morning, the application from this message is that I need a Savior like that. Because, Brooks, to be honest, I'm at a place where I don't think God would ever have me. You know, I've even tried before. In fact, I'm even here today because I'm trying to somehow score points and make my good outweigh my bad. And I'm hoping at the end of the day, when I stand before him, that I'll have enough good and he'll let me in. And You know, honestly, in my heart of hearts, I, I don't have what it takes. I don't think I'm one of those righteous people. And I, I don't feel like God's on my side. And, and I need a Savior. And I can't be good enough. And I can't get cleaned up fast enough. But I know I need him today. You know, the application for you, the good news is that Jesus meets you right where you are. And it doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done. It doesn't matter how long a list of sin you may have. And honestly, we've all got one longer than we want to admit. That he died on the cross and he rose again to to pay for all of it. And, And if you're waiting to get good enough to come to him, your wait will never end. You'll stand before him unprepared. Because we'll never get cleaned up first. He says that he'll clean up the one that comes to him. He'll take his righteousness and give it to you. He's not waiting for you to to earn it or to to somehow bring it about in your life. He says if you'll just turn from sin, change your your mind about it, don't to the point to where you don't want sin to define you anymore. If you can say, Lord Jesus, I don't want sin any longer. Will you still sin in the future? Yes, you probably will. But today, Lord, I don't want sin to define my life. I want you to define my life. And so today, Lord Jesus, I turn from my sin and I give my life to you to come and to take over and to forgive me and to make me who you want me to be. It's that prayer, one similar. Prayed in faith that he hears and that he answers every single time. And so for some this morning, the application is is to invite that Savior Jesus to take over your life. Then he'll use you to take the message to others. Lord, I pray today for for this crowd today, for each of us, God. I pray that we'll leave this place with no barriers in our lives. Lord, that the months and the years ahead will show that this church and its doors are open to every person, regardless of race or religion or lifestyle or any of those things. Lord, that the doors are open for anyone to come and to receive. Lord, you know there's only one way of salvation. It comes through Christ. That can't be compromised. Your word communicates truth to us that can't be compromised. But Lord, in regards to the availability of the gospel, it's open to all. 
And so, Lord, I pray that continually the tone of this church, the landscape of it, the climate of this church would change because of the numbers of people that are brought to you here. And, Lord, for those that are seated in this place, even right now, Lord, that need you as Savior, Lord Jesus, give them the courage right where they sit to just pray a simple prayer of turning over their life to you, Lord Jesus, to take it, to forgive them, and to make them who you want them to be. God, help us now to act on the message you've shown us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.